Have you guys ever noticed that out there there's a lot of uh, warning labels, a lot of warning signs out there? Um, I've been noticing that this week and kind of looked into that a little bit deeper and saw that there's just a, ton, just a ton of them out there. Like, for example, I saw a tractor this week. It had a warning label on it that said, Caution, avoid death, which kind of encompasses everything with that caution. Um, saw a warning label on a stroller, and pretty interesting, says, caution, remove baby before folding stroller for storage, which was a good thing because I was getting ready to fold it right up in there. Um, saw a warning label on a Batman costume, said, warning, cape does not enable user to fly, which is crazy talk because we know Batman doesn't fly, it's Superman that flies. Saw this one here. I think you guys will get a kick out of this one. Do not, or danger, do not hold the wrong end of the chainsaw. Because I do sometimes get confused when it comes to which end of the chainsaw I'm supposed to be grabbing onto. Um, Notice this one at a place where we take our kids to play. If you can't read that and see in the background, in the background there's a playground and the sign says, warning, rattlesnakes and poison oak in this area. So we oftentimes love taking our kids there. Here's one. Caution, this sign has sharp edges. Look out, everybody. It is a sharp-edged sign. Don't touch the edges of this sign. Then right there at the bottom, in very small print, it says, also the bridge is out ahead. So you're going to want to make note of that. One of my personal favorites here. Touching wires causes instant death. $200 fine. So if the whole death thing wasn't going to deter you enough, the fine might. So if you touch these and live, you're going to have to pay. I love this one. No drowning. If you're going to do that, you better go someplace else because we're not having that here. This last one is my wife's personal favorite. It says, caution, do not swallow. (laughs) Got a really good picture there of what's going to happen if you do swallow that hanger. Notice the guy, and it's like all caught sideways in there. <laughs> Sometimes, you know, we need to be warned about uh, dangerous situations. And oftentimes, ignoring the... i got to get rid of that, because you're not going to pay attention with that up there. <laughs> oftentimes, there's... If when we ignore those warnings, it can lead to some pretty devastating consequences... How many times in life have we as people ignored the warning signs? I mean, let's be real. When we see signs like that, they're everywhere. They're all over the place. And the problem is, is that there's so many warning signs out there that we have a tendency to ignore them. We just forget about them. I think that's what oftentimes happens when we read Scripture. I mean, let's be real. When we get into this part of Scripture, this part of Scripture, if, if it doesn't do it to you, it does it to me. It gets to a point where we get confused, we get we get uh, kind of spaced out here. We're not really sure what's going on. And all these warnings and this and that are going on. And, and, and I think this, this, this ignoring of warnings ha- tends to happen when we read Scripture. And I know that like our life group has talked about it, that, that as we've been going through this book, this story, we've seen God you know, speak in, in many different ways that we sometimes often get overloaded with these warning signs and overlook them because they're so obvious. 
So in the next few weeks, we're going to be starting to talk about the prophets. We're going to be talking about you know, some of the prophets that you may know, some of the prophets that you may not know so well. But what we need to understand is that the prophets, the prophets are God's messengers. And they're, they're God's messengers. He sends them to warn of devastation and destruction that was often coming. Now, we, we, we see and we read in Second Chronicles uh, 36, 15, and 16 that God would rise up early in the morning sending his messengers to warn the people. Now, when it says that he would rise up early in the morning, that doesn't mean that he set his alarm clock saying, I'm going to have to send out a warning, you know, really early, so I'm going to get up early. No, that's not what he meant. What, what it means when it says that is that God would he, would, he would send out his messengers before tragedy struck, before devastation happened, before um, sin took full root in people and the weight of its consequences would be upon them. He would, God would send out his messengers and they would speak on God's behalf. Now, if you remember last week when Matt was here, Matt Ness was here and he was talking, he had us in 1 Kings and he was talking about how the nation of Israel had split into the northern and the southern kingdoms. And Jeroboam, he was the first king of the northern kingdom. Now, the problem that Jeroboam had was that the people would travel to the southern kingdom, from the northern kingdom to the southern kingdom to to worship. Because that's where Jerusalem was and that's where they would go to worship. And this became a problem to Jeroboam because he didn't want all, the, he didn't want all those people traveling down there and, and he wanted to keep them up in the northern kingdom because you know how kings are. Kings want to keep all the people there because that's, you know, everything to them. So he really saw this as a big problem that people were moving and traveling down to the southern kingdom to worship. So what he did was is he, he made up some idols and he found some idols in storage that had been in storage for hundreds of years and he took them out of storage. So he tried to convince the people not to travel to the southern kingdom. I mean, he probably threw out everything like, hey, don't go on down there. You know, traffic's going to be terrible and, you know, their camels smell funny and, and all sorts of stuff. So he tried to keep people from going down there and he introduced these idols to them as a way to get them to worship in the northern kingdom. So with that being said, idolatry is reintroduced into the northern kingdom, into the nation of Israel, in a much more significant way than it had been in the past. And as time passes on, and as kings come in and out, idolatry becomes more and more and more and more prevalent in the nation of Israel. Okay? Until we get to um, King Ahab, which is in 1 Kings chapter 16. So if you want to take your Bibles out, 1 Kings 16, that's where we're at today. And we're in verses um, 28, I'm sorry, 29 and 30. 1 Kings 16, 29 through 30. says, Ahab, son of, son of Omri, became king of Israel, and he reigned in Samaria over Israel 22 years. Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. So here we are. We, ha- we have Ahab, really evil king, and idolatry is, again, prevalent in Israel during this time. And Ahab, under Ahab's rule, idolatry goes out of control. Okay? So here's the problem. I'm going to step off to the side because I'm sure that I'm going to hear it for this one. The problem here was his wife. That's the problem here. I'm not saying that's the problem all the time. That's the problem in this case. Okay? So I don't want to hear anything afterwards. You can talk to your own wife. 
I'm going to deal with mine after this. The problem here is his wife Jezebel. Now, not, not like a Jezebel. She, like the original Jezebel. Jezebel. That was, that was a problem. She was the princess of the Sidonians, and she wanted to build a temple and an altar for her god, god uh, Baal. Now, Baal was the god of weather that they worshipped from Jezebel's country. And in order to get like this altar built and to get people worshiping Baal, what she had done is she first had many prophets of the Lord put to death. Up until the point where God is like, enough is enough, and he decided to send Elijah with a message for the people. So now, when God sends a message to the prophets, it's usually not like good news. Like they don't typically get fun things to say. They usually bring some kind of message that's, that's kind of gloomy and, and, and dark and, and, and whatnot. So we see in 1 Kings 17, 1, it says, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. And because of this, everybody will know that God is God. See, the theme... Of of the Old Testament, and the theme of the prophets, we've been kind of noticing as we've read through the story here, this whole theme is idolatry. I mean, the first two commandments deal with idolatry. There's more than a thousand verses in the Bible dealing with idolatry. It's one of only four commandments in the Bible that has the, be- the death penalty attached to it. But as we've saw through the story, time and after time after time, people of the Old Testament will go to these false gods and idols and get themselves into trouble to a point where God has to come in and rescue them and save the day. Like I said, we've talked about this in our life group. I've mentioned this in our life group. Time after time after time, people will get themselves in trouble and God says, okay, come on, come on. It's like almost like bringing your kids back from being in trouble. Come on, let's go. Let's come on back here. And God does this over and over and over again. And it's, I don't want, it's funny, not ha-ha funny, but it's, it's interesting that People continue to do this over and over again. Like, God will save them, and it's just like a kid. They just wander back off, just like, you know, what just happened? I just saved you. I just rescued you, and then now you're gone again. I'm sure God got really frustrated with us or with those people during that time. So, God takes idolatry very, very seriously. Why? Well, in looking at the story, the whole story is about the glory of God. The whole story is about the glory of God. Your story, my story, the story. All about the glory of God. And where there's idolatry, God is being robbed of that glory. And it's being given to another. God has a big problem with this. See, we tend to skip over this in our culture because the worshiping of false gods in our culture is kind of irrelevant. I mean, when I think about idolatry, I think about like this, and I don't know what you guys have pictured in your head, but when I think about the term idolatry, I think about a bunch of people gathering around like a carved statue or a a statue made of gold or whatever, and then just kind of gathering around that statue and just worshiping it, right? That's what I have come to mind when, uh, when I think of idolatry. But are we really that different? I mean, if we think about idolatry as being people, you know, gathering around this carved statue or this temple or whatever it might be and, 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 and circling that thing and worshiping that thing, are we really that different? I noticed when I walked into my house this week and I walked into my living room and I noticed all the chairs in my living room 
encircled around one central point, being the TV. Are we really that different? Is it possible that our hearts haven't changed at all and that our idols just look a little different? The question is, is where do you put your hope? What holds the seed of glory in your heart? A lot of times I think we often look to someone or something else other than God to fill that spot. Maybe we come home from work one day and we just want some comfort, so we plop down in front of the TV and we worship. We zone out. We get some comfort. We get some peace. Maybe it's Facebook or the Internet that we worship. Maybe it's a spouse or a boyfriend or a girlfriend. And we look to that person to complete us. Maybe it's money and security that we worship. In other words, we start asking money to do for us what God wants to do for us. And it's these things that start robbing the glory from God. See, our idols are just as real. They're just harder to identify. So let's identify some of those idols in our life. Now remember, the role of the prophets, the role of the prophet is to help recognize the reality of idolatry. Long ago, there was a a preacher named David Clarkston, and he came up with a a set of questions that would help people identify the idols of their heart. And so, just kind of reworked some of these for today's day and age. And, And the answers to these questions will often point to God's primary competition in your life. So I want to bring up these questions. I just want you to, I just want you to um, kind of ask them to yourself silently, you know, kind of mull them over in your head, and see what, uh, see what they say to you. First one being, what are you most disappointed with? What do you complain about the most? Maybe it's your job. Maybe it's your spouse. Children. See, whatever you're most disappointed with often points to what you have put your hope into. Instead of putting our hope into God, we put it into these other things that oftentimes leave us disappointed. How about this? What do you sacrifice your time and your money for? This often shows us what or who our God is. A person, your home, your job, your car, The Bible tells us where your treasure is, is where your heart is. If you want to know who or what you worship, look at your checkbook. That's a real good indicator. What do you worry about? What scares you? What if I lost this or what if I lost that? What if I lost this relationship? What about my health, my spouse's health? What if I lost this person? Life wouldn't be worth living anymore. How about this? Where do you go when you're hurt? Where do you go when life gets hard? Where do you go to find comfort? Maybe at the end of the day, a hard day, you walk in the house and you hit the refrigerator and you find it sitting in there. We even call it comfort food. Instead of turning to God, we make ourselves feel better by eating or drinking. Maybe you get into a fight with your spouse and you enter that pagan temple of a pornographic website 
or into the arms of another person. Maybe you turn on the TV for comfort after a hard day so you can just kind of zone out. See, where we go for comfort often reveals where we put our hope. Think about it like this. Let's say that there is this, uh, there's this boy and he goes to school and the boy just loves his kindergarten teacher. I mean, just raves and raves and raves about his kindergarten teacher. And every day he comes home and he's telling his mom about the kindergarten teacher. And she did this and she did that and this was wonderful and that was wonderful and, and then this and then that. And after a while, the mom, even though she probably wouldn't admit to it too much, starts to maybe feel a little bit jealous of that kindergarten teacher. And then one day, the mom decides that she's going to go into the school and she's going to, you know, volunteer. And so she's in there and she's volunteering and they go out for recess and, her, and, the, and the mom and the kindergarten teacher are out on the playground. They're standing next to each other and they're talking. And off in the distance, you see the boy and he falls and he gets hurt and he starts crying and tears start to come and he starts running towards them. Well, whose arms is he going to run into? Well, it's no question. He's going to run into the arms of his mom. Why? Because where you turn when you're hurting shows where your heart is. Let me say that again. Where you turn when, you're, where you're, when you are hurting shows where your heart is. That boy's heart was obviously with his mom. How about this? What makes you mad? What makes you angry? Maybe your team loses and it ruins your whole week. Maybe somebody treats you with disrespect And it makes you mad because you've made what other people think about you a God. Allowed that to take over your heart. Here's one. What brings you the most joy? And this is where it gets a little challenging because we know that God is the provider of joy to us. And this joy often comes from gifts of God, good gifts from God. what oftentimes happens is we allow those gifts to draw us away from God. And they pull us away from God. And they become competition for Him. So instead of worshiping the giver, we start worshiping the gift. And we allow those gifts to replace Him. So what brings us joy can sometimes become competition for God. Whose applause do you long for? Whose approval are you living for? Maybe it's a boss or a spouse or a parent or a friend. Whoever you're living for oftentimes reveals who has the throne on your heart. So let's, let's put it like this. Basically what an idol is, is. An idol is anything or anyone other than God that takes that position, that takes the passion, the value, the hope, the glory, and the commitment of your life. Basically, an idol is a cheap substitute for God. A cheap substitute for God. And we look to that idol, that someone or that something, to do for us what God wants to do for us. I don't think that I'm probably the only person in here that maybe has this, but I wouldn't by any stretch of the imagination call myself like a coffee guru. I'm not, I'm not like what Matt said last week. I'm not that guy that, that's going out and paying way too much money than I can afford for coffee. But i got to tell you a story. <clears throat> Every Thanksgiving, a friend of mine, a dear friend of mine from, from way back, him and I, we go out hunting, okay? 
And we go, we go to the same spot every year, by the, the same path, to the same blind. And we, do more, really, we really do more talking than we do hunting. But we always take one thing with us. And we always take a thermos of coffee. And we'll drink coffee all morning. And I know that a lot of times on Thanksgiving morning when I get home, I've drank about a pot of coffee and I'm all hyped up. And then it, right after we eat at, at my in-law's house, I just zonk out, right? Which is by design. Um, just kidding. Just kidding. Not really. <laughs> and uh, so anyways, we've got our thermoses of coffee out there. And um, I remember one year, this was years ago, um, he opened up his thermos, and I just, the wind must have just blown right, and I smelled it. I'm like, that smells really, really good. And he's like, he's like oh, yeah, that's right. And I said, uh, what do you mean? He's like, I don't buy that garbage stuff. I don't buy that cheap stuff. I'm like, coffee is coffee, man. He's like, nah, that stuff, I guarantee that stuff's bitter, and this stuff is not. Here, he tried some. So he gave me a drink of his coffee, and I tried it. I'm like, wow, you know, this is amazing stuff. And, and from that, it just put me on this path of, like, I'm seeking out, like, all kinds of different coffees. So, like, it was, like, it got exciting for a while. Like, I would go to the store, and I would, like, pull the bags off the shelf, and, and my wife and I, we'd try all different kinds of coffee. And finally, we, dis- we discovered, and we found, and we kind of, um, came up with this one right here, which became our favorite. And it's, it is made by Starbucks, and it's called Cafe Verona. And I'm telling you what, this stuff, to, to us, we loved this stuff. It was great. And, like, we, we would make our co- I'd go into the store, and it's got, I don't know if you guys know this or not, but it's got a little hole here where you can, like, smell the coffee. And I'd be in the store with I have my nose right up to that thing. And, you know, I'd say to her, hey, smell this. And she's like, I'm not putting my nose on that thing. Do you know who's touched that? And, I'm just, and I didn't care because I was, like, entranced by this smell of coffee. And I'd be walking around the store, you know, like this. It was like, almost like a baby with a pacifier. And I'd have this up to my nose. And it just, it made everything happy and great and wonderful. And it was grand. And um, just loved it. Like I said, I'm not a coffee guru or anything like that. I just really liked this, this kind of coffee. I really liked it a lot. And as you guys know, we went through some transitions in my family here recently where my wife um, got a different job. That was, that's a part-time job. So, you know, um, she has really prided herself on, on, you know, being able to reduce our budget in the area of groceries and whatnot. And I remember, you know, as, this, as we were going through this transition to do that, you know, one morning on my way to work and I'm drinking my coffee and I'm like, there's something the matter with this coffee. I says, you know what? It's probably this mug. I'm drinking out of a plastic mug, and it's probably got some kind of a taste on it from the dishwasher. And so, you know, I didn't think a lot about it. And then, like, the next day, I, I grabbed a different mug that's stainless steel on the inside, and the coffee still didn't taste quite right. I'm like, well, it's got to be, you know, it's got to be something else. And, you know, maybe, maybe the coffee pot has kind of become contaminated because we use it so much, and so maybe it's time to get a new coffee pot because this one's, you know, just got the a weird taste to it, and so did the whole coffee pot cleaning thing, you know, really scrubbing it out, and, and still, it just, it was never the same, and, and I even remember one time she said, she said, this coffee's not very good lately, is it? And I'm like, no, it's not, and I went later on that week, I, I, was, in the, I was in the pantry for, um, to get a snack, and I look up, and I see this blasphemous product right there, and I think, what? What is that? I mean, it, Meyer French Roast Coffee. I thought the Colombians were famous for coffee, not the French. And it, 
comes in like a 50-gallon drum here. <laughs> What's the deal with this? And so I guess, you know, we've kind of gotten used to it, but it's never, it's never been like the same. It's never been what we had in the past. And I think sometimes, often, we're force-fed in our culture these cheap substitutes for God. And we don't notice it, and we often become really used to it. And we come, we, we've come accustomed to finding our hope and our pleasure and our security in other things. But every once in a while, we have one of those awakening moments, one of those aha moments where we say, you know, this can't be all there is. This can't be, be all there is. And what's happened is, is we've settled for something other than God to satisfy us. We've put other things in our life to take the position of hope and glory in our lives. We've settled for a cheap substitute. So God addresses idolatry and he sends his messengers again and again to warn where it's leading and what's going to come if they continue down that path. And in the story, God says to Ahab through Elijah, look, a drought's coming. There's not going to be rain. There's not even going to be dew on the ground. And you're going to see who the real God is. Now, one thing we need to understand about the story is that Baal, this, this God that Jezebel wanted the uh, northern kingdom to worship, Baal is predominantly thought of as the God of weather or the God of rain. So do you see what God's doing here? God's withholding his blessing in the area of their lives that they've elevated to God's status. They're worshiping the God of rain. So God says, I'm going to withhold the rain. Now, I don't think that we should be surprised when there's a drought in our lives that matches up with something that we've elevated to God's status. Something that's become equal in our hearts, equal to God in our hearts. He's not going to bless his primary competition. Why, why would he bless something that's replaced him? I mean, sometimes we pray like, God, would you please give me this job? Please give me this job. Please give me this job. And that, that's okay to pray for that. But when that takes over the throne in our heart, I don't think God's going to bless that. I don't think he's going to bless his competition. Or maybe we're praying, hey, God, if you could just give us some more money here, we just need this much more to get by. I think it's okay to pray those prayers that God will provide for us. But when we hold that on the throne of our, in our hearts, God's not going to bless his competition. So what we see in the story is God withholding his blessing. And he brings a drought, a drought so severe that there wasn't even dew on the ground. And God wants to get the attention. He wants to grab the attention of the people. Why? Because he loves them. Because he loves them. He wants them to realize who he really is. That he's the one true God. I think the opposite is true as well. I think sometimes when, when we put God in the rightful place in our heart, when we put him on the throne of our heart, that we shouldn't be surprised to look up and see the rain fall. I mean, I'm sure you all can tell stories about people in your life or maybe you yourself when maybe tithing. Maybe at one point in time you weren't tithing as God had called you to do. And so you couldn't make sense of it. You couldn't figure out how it was going to work in your budget. But you just stepped out and you tested him. You tested God where he said, hey, test me in this area. 
And so you stepped out and you said, I don't know how it's going to work, but I'm going to do it. And then the blessings just flowed. Or how about a young woman or a young man who, who prays and prays and prays, God, just bring me a spouse. Just bring me a husband or a wife. And it never happens. And then one time, they, or, and then they start to realize that only Christ can fill those holes. That somebody else wasn't designed to fill those holes, but Christ was designed to fill those holes. So they put God back in the rightful spot in their hearts. And the next thing you know, they meet their husband or they meet their wives. I don't think that that's any coincidence. So Elijah says to the king that there's going to be a drought. And then he sets up what's basically like a cage match between the Lord and all these, fake, these false gods. So when we skip ahead to 1 Kings 18, 19 through 21, it says, Now summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel and bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Azariah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Elijah went before the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. So here you have, you have Elijah saying, Hey, if the Lord's God, follow him. If Baal's God, follow him. But the people remained silent. Why? Because they wanted both. They wanted both. If they would have wanted God, they would have said, we choose God. If they would have wanted Baal, they would have said, we choose Baal. But they said nothing because they wanted both. I think this is true for us today as well. It's not that we don't want God. We just want God and something else. We want God to share the throne in our lives. And God doesn't share. God says you're going to have to choose who is first. Who's your top commitment? Who's your top priority? So the sage is set for this cage match. And they gather together on Mount Carmel. And Elijah gives instructions in verses 25 through 28. And he says to the prophets of Baal, Choose one of the bulls and prepare it first. Since there are so many of you, call on the name of your God, but do not light the fire. So they took the bull given them and they prepared it. Then they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. Baal, answer us, they shouted, but there was no response. No one answered. And they danced around the altar they had made. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. He starts talking some trash here. He says, Shout louder! Surely he is a God. Perhaps he's deep in thought or, or maybe he's busy or maybe he's traveling. Maybe he's sleeping and he's got to be awakened. So they shouted louder. And they slashed themselves with swords and spears, as was their custom, until their blood flowed. What a tragic scene this must have been as they're trying to get the attention of their false gods and they're bleeding for these false gods and hoping that that's going to be enough. 
hoping that that's going to satisfy. And we look at them and we say, oh, that's so ridiculous. That's so primitive. Bleeding for these idols. But are we really that different? I think oftentimes we bleed for our gods. Some of us have even bled out. Some of us have bled out on the, uh, on the altar of alcohol or drugs and have sacrificed almost everything to worship that God. Maybe seeking the God of sexual pleasure or emotional security, we've sacrificed our marriage or intimacy in our marriage. Some of us have even bled out for the God of cable TV or the God of entertainment or the God of sports or the God of Facebook or the God of the internet. We've sacrificed relationships with our children, with our family, with our friends to worship these gods. We bleed for our gods. They're different, but we bleed for them all the same. So nothing happens when the people try to get Baal to answer, and it becomes Elijah's turn. And so Elijah has a trench dug around the altar, and he puts wood on the altar, and then he soaks the wood with gallons and gallons and gallons of water, enough water that it fills up the trench. And in verse 36, Elijah steps forward and prays a simple little prayer. And he says in verse 36, At the usual time for offering the evening sacrifice, Elijah, the prophet, walked up to the altar and prayed, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, prove today that you are God in Israel and that I'm your servant. Prove that I have done all this at your command. O Lord, answer me. Answer me so these people will know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have brought them back to yourself. What he's saying is, God, do this not for me, not so that I will be victorious, but so that they'll know that you are God. What he's saying here is, God, do this for your glory. Don't do it for revenge. Don't do it so I'm going to save face. Do this for your glory, to draw the people back to you. In verse 38, we read, Immediately the fire of the Lord flashed down from heaven and burned up the young bull, the wood, the stones, and the dust. It even licked up all the water in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell face down on the ground and they cried out, The Lord, He is God. Yes, the Lord is God. And once again, the story is about the glory of God. What we need to understand here is that idolatry is not just offensive to God, but it hurts God. It hurts God because He loves us. The Bible tells us that He's a jealous God, jealous for our hearts. The prophet Ezekiel says, when we give our hearts to another, it's like God is being cheated on or we're having an affair. The theme of the Old Testament, or even the Bible as a whole, as we mentioned before, describes how we often turn from God. Sometimes that turning from God, it's gonna, it happens quickly in our lives, and sometimes it's a slow fade. We turn from God, and we do it over and over and over. And we don't have to do that 
We don't have to live like that. story, the next part in the story that we read about is about the prophet Hosea. And I don't know if you've read about this prophet or not, but um, basically the story is this. You have this prophet Hosea and uh, God, God was using this prophet and then God spoke to this prophet saying, hey, I want you to go downtown and I want you to find this prostitute named Gomer and I want you to marry her and I want you to bring her back home and I want you to just spread your love all over her. And so he does. He goes downtown, he goes into, I guess, what's considered the red light district or whatever you want to call it, and there he finds her. He finds Gomer. And he brings her home, and he showers her with love, and he marries her, and things, things are going good. Things are going great. They're having a, they're having a great marriage, and they're having kids, and, and everything's wonderful. And one day he comes home, and she's not there. And he gets these fleeting thoughts in him, like, what if she went back to her old life? He starts getting a little out of breath and he starts getting a little panicky and he decides he's going to go back down to where he had originally found her and there, and there she is. Her arms wrapped around another man leading him into a house of prostitution. Hosea is devastated at what he says and he cries out to God, what now, God? What now? What do you want me to do now? And God speaks to him pretty clear and he says, I want you to go back down there and I want you to buy her a second time. I want you to bring her home and I want you to shower her with love. And Hosea's like, why, God? Why? And God's response is simply, so that the people will know that I love them. So that the people will know that I want you back and that I still love you with all my heart. And so the warning from the prophets is this there's nothing and there's no one that sits on your on the throne of your heart other than God. And if there's something or someone that you've asked God to share with with your heart, then you need to repent of that. You need to turn away from that sin and you need to put God back in his rightful place. And your story needs to once again start being about the glory of God. And the message of the prophets is this. If you haven't been doing that, you can start today.
You can come home today. God still wants you today. Why? Because his love is here and his love is now. Love is here. Love is now. Love is pouring from his hands and from his brow. Love is clear. It's satisfied. Streams of mercy flowing from his side. And to the bruised and falling captives bound broken hearted. He's paid our ransom From his wounds we drink salvation He is the Lord He is the Lord Love is here Love is now Love is pouring from his hands And from his brow Love is here It's satisfied Dreams of mercy flowing from his side. His love is here, love is now. Love is pouring from his hands and from his brow. Love is near, it satisfies. Streams of mercy flowing from his side. Streams of mercy flowing from his side, cause love is here, love is here.